the Triathlon Show 422. Hey, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode David Doche is back to co-host uh, Q&A and we have a big mix of questions today. As you can see the episode is very long so hopefully this will give you a good amount of listening content if you find yourself with extra time on your hands. I also have a quick piece of housekeeping, which is that I will not be doing that triathlon show weekly in 2024, but on an ad libitum schedule, which I would estimate will be about two episodes per month, but the frequency might vary a bit. There might be some periods with episodes released in consecutive weeks and others where there is some more time between episodes. It has been almost seven years of releasing at least one episode every single week, and uh, that adds up to over 360 weeks of not missing a single one. So while the triathlon show is not going anywhere, I feel that the time is right to move away from that strict schedule and use some of the time that I uh, invest into the frequent episodes on other projects. Before we get into the Q&A, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools, education and a patented sweat test. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate, sodium and fluid intake. And you can also book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. I have used their entire range of products for a long time and I think they're absolutely brilliant and you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS23 on precisionfuelhydration.com. Note that this code will change in 2024 as you can guess it, it is TTS24. So if you listen to this episode or you're shopping in 2024 then use the code TTS24 rather than TTS23. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time as you can do something short but with good quality at home and save a lot of time on commuting to the pool it's also a great tool for training through pool closures or certain injuries in these situations the senate can help you maintain your muscular endurance which in my experience is often a problem otherwise as swim specific muscular endurance seems to deteriorate quite quickly more so than technique even so you can try the senate risk-free for up to 30 days and you can get 20 percent off your first order on senatetimeturner.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the q a co-hosted by david doge Nice to have you back on that triathlon show, David. How are you doing? I'm fine. Well, fine. Uh, coming out of some sickness, <laughs> as you know. So not that fine after uh, having had COVID last week. But um, I'm getting better. I'm I'm getting there. So yeah, yeah. Good enough to good enough to do the the podcast. So that's that's good. I I appreciate you helping me because this will be a, a big one, a long long Q and A. Uh, let's let's dive right in with the, the first question. And uh, so just for listeners, we have a mix of questions. Some of them have been sent in to in response to some requests for questions from a month or two ago and some more recently. So, so there's a good mix of all sorts of things, not just training. This is an example of a not training-related question necessarily, not directly. It's what was your favorite uh, That Triathlon Show episode of the year? It's from Kieran. Yeah, it's a difficult one, in fact. Um I have two in mind that like um maybe to answer the the yeah the next question already um where 
where he asks about um, did it change something in my meta and um, my training methodology or something i would think about um Bentronestad and doing 3030s 3015s i've i've been a bit skeptical in the past about these things uh well about this very hard um, effort i was more into longer vo2 work but you know when listening to the podcast and also having read some of his stuff i think that changed a bit my metho- methodology using a bit more of those uh, very hard um, high intensity 30 15s more I, w- i would i would use so um that was a good episode uh, with with bentron stat and i'm also thinking about another one which didn't really affect my methodology but i liked the one with um, sam lelo's father richard um why because just because i yeah the info he gave i i see a lot of it i would say in in my own training methodology uh, that i use for for my own athletes um so yeah those, those are two ones who while yeah who i like to uh, yeah there will probably be a lot of other things um i can't remember right now there was also one who talks about it was with a Um, yeah, I don't remember her name, but more of the psychology of the athlete, which is sometimes also mm. something we might maybe Josie jo- Josie Perry maybe or yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, or and, Perry um, McCauley, perhaps. Yeah, don't remember the name, but um, both both of those episodes were good, so I recommend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To to so it, it's also something. Yeah, like I said, we don't really talk a lot about that, and uh, but it is an important one. Um, so so yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Uh it's it's funny that you mentioned Bent and Richard. I have I have a list of five actually. I couldn't pick one. But the one that I wrote first, which is probably my favorite, that was Bent Renestad. That's the one that first came to mind because he's just an awesome scientist. Uh there were we had many different topics. We had intro training, which is super good, but also uh heat training. So yeah, he's somebody that I would say, as you said, part two of the question is have you changed your training methodology as a result of any of the tips? Uh i didn't necessarily change anything because I was already doing a lot of the Dennistad stuff from before, like the interval training, the heat training, or so a lot of a lot of that is influenced by research that he has conducted. So, but it was just great to finally be able to talk to him. It's something that I've he's been on my on my hit list since I started the podcast essentially, and I tried a few times, and and now we finally made it happen. So, and when when that happens, and then it's worth the wait then that's that's always a good experience so so that that was my favorite episode uh but then yeah the other ones that i would mention dan lorang and richard laidlow uh the coaches of the uh, male and female ironman world champions for the years and they were both great episodes they're both great people and uh, uh so those were yeah really good and then also i would Uh, say Vasco Vilasa and Sophie Coldwell on the athlete side of things I really liked those episodes because they were very uh yeah they were, it was very interesting to hear about their training and their experiences uh especially because they are short course athletes and that is something that I I would say I have less direct insight into than long course and uh yeah I really liked them both as athletes so so yeah those those I also like so those, that would my my top five yeah uh so so let's see yeah and, the, and part two of the question have you changed your training methodology at all as a result of any of the tips uh yeah i just wanted to add there that uh yeah it's as i said a bit it 
it often works the other way that uh, for me at least i come across some interesting work i start using it or experimenting with it and if it seems to work really well i might invite the person who came up with it on the podcast so it's uh, uh if it's like an academic uh person or or something uh so and and if it's more like something coaching wise i i don't know about you but for me it's not it's not something that i after hearing one person say something i change something but when you hear a lot of people talk about something it gradually for something gradually grows in your brain yeah, in indeed. your mind that that you maybe start trialing it and then you see how it goes but at the end of the day your own experiences with it will form whether you think that it works in the context of your athletes or yeah. not yeah it surely is you also you always need to um, to really like uh, think about it and how do you really think first that that this can be can add some value to your own training methodology and then you you if you think so okay yes you then then you need to find a way how to implement it also in your in your uh, schedule of course well in in your planning with your athletes so it, it's it's something that grows um certainly not from one day to another day okay yeah i heard this i'll i'll put that in and um it's it's more a yeah it's a uh, yeah it needs to be an grow. organic process uh, yeah. yeah 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 indeed yeah 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 all right uh so the next question is from connell i think i'm not sure if i pronounced that name correct so my, my apologies for that uh, but anyway the question is if your main focus for the year is on sprint distance races what changes would you make to training compared to if you're focusing on middle distance which i was previously do you want to start david yeah um i would say in my opinion i think i would yeah probably focus a bit more on on that high-end work and probably more on threshold work too because it's so um it's very race specific and i i'm not saying that it's not important for 70.3 racing but when you come in sort of a uh, race specific phase well for 70.3 you might be working a bit more uh, yeah in, in that sub-threshold ranges um specific 70.3 power where at sprint for sprint distances you need to work more at threshold becoming becoming very lactic um let's say um yeah working around the lactic ranges so the body is 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 used to to working at that intensity speed is very important for the sprint distance for every distance um but if you do for example sprint um draft legal races you need to be able to to like search very hard so i would focus more on the high-end ranges and probably i will do that in a different sort of periodization working um where i would like where i like to work more reversed i would probably with sprint races work more uh, um i would still do some high intensity in the beginning of course and of the season depending on the weaknesses but i think i might want to work more high end stuff towards the race and 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 get uh, get that athlete ready um with with threshold and and yeah and, and higher end stuff so i think i think that's a bit the difference there more threshold based and higher intensity work um, yeah yeah i agree with that as sprint distance i'd put a big focus on the threshold work also keeping an eye on vo2 max because the vo2 max is a bit of a ceiling on your threshold so that depends on the athlete some athletes are not limited by vo2 max but but that's something that you need to check with the athlete i would also maybe in terms of the disciplines see if 
the swim has a bigger relative importance in sprint distance races so maybe put a bit more time on swimming uh again depends on if that is a strength or a weakness of the athlete but but generally speaking the swim is more important in sprint distance and in middle distance um yeah the the middle distance is more general if you look at it the other way what is the difference what is the bigger focus in middle distance for me i would put a bigger focus on lt1 fatigue resistance efficiency or economy fueling and hydration those sorts of things and and the bike and run of course would be much more important than the uh, than the swim the bike is still very important in the sprint distance in terms of the percentage of the race time the they are i would say often quite similar percentage wise but um but yeah the swim and the run are a bit more the run becomes more important for the middle distance percentage wise and the swim less important um but yeah one other thing that i would say is that what i wouldn't change is i wouldn't change the volume if you can still keep the same volume because just because it's shorter doesn't mean that you won't benefit just as much from the volume mm-hmm. certainly yeah i, I can only agree um yeah. Yeah, and and I like what you said about the periodization. I agree with that as well because you basically end up doing more traditional periodization, which becomes more race specific, closer to the race. So that makes makes sense. So uh, let's move on to the re- next question. Uh, yeah, we we do have a lot of them, so it's good that we're moving through them with some clip. Uh, this one is from Alex, who's asking: I'm currently following the advanced twenty one three plan. My A race is in May, and I'm shooting for sub four thirty. I want to know how to establish my ideal race weight for the day. I am 34 years old, 73 kilograms and 175 centimeters. I have got a nutritionist and our concern is fueling workouts with high, with fueling workouts with intensity and sustaining volume, but also dropping weight. Should we drop quick-ish in base phase or slow and steady throughout the plan whilst being mindful of low energy availability? Yeah, um, the answer is in the question, in my opinion, uh, well, I, I would say never drop quickly, but do it uh, slow and steady and be mindful of low energy. Um, I mean, you need to make sure weight, weight loss and weight gain is always a bit of a difficult one because on one hand, you need to, to fuel really your sessions, um, um, so you also recover well. On the other hand, yeah, you want to lose weight. So you think, okay, yeah, if I'm fueling a lot um, during my sessions, I'll gain weight. I won't lose my weight. Well, um, I think you need to keep the focus really on fueling those sessions and put apart the lo- the, the weight of uh, um, the loss of weight gain. Sorry. Um, so this is extremely important fueling during sessions before going fueled into sessions, fueling after them um and i would say for the weight loss do it steadily it's a long process never do it very quickly and and focus on the on the um on the on the basic stuff in fact um just eating healthy uh with lots of variety and that's a way to to lose weight and at the same time keep your energy levels high um, in, in, in your training sessions. So I would never like try to drop weight very quickly by, yeah, under eating maybe. Um, that could mess up your home hormones. You could get injured. That's not what you want. So it's not a long term. Uh, uh, yeah, it won't work over the long term. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's an answer on, on the question, but, um, that's at least my opinion. Never, never do it too, too fast. Um, Fueling sessions is very important. 
Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. The, on, the only thing I would add here, which is an interesting, um, I guess, interesting thing about this question is that Alex, uh, he or she, uh, I'm actually not sure, they say that they have got a nutritionist uh, that they're working with. So then my question is, um, why, why, are, why are we getting this question for the podcast? Because I think that this is something that actually you need to, like you have done a good thing of uh, deciding to work with a professional that can help you and hopefully has a lot of experience with, with this sort of thing. So I, I would say that it's important also to uh, yeah, just trust that process, buy into that process and uh, not second guess it uh, because we are not, uh, well, nutritionists, I should clarify for people that are not aware, there is registered dietitian and there is nutritionist. Registered dietitian is something that, that is uh, formalized. It's, um, what is the right word? Uh, not le- legislated, but it's a, it's an official title. Anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. I could, I could start calling myself a nutritionist today, but I can't call myself a registered dietitian. So, so I think that for people interested, I will always recommend working with a registered dietitian, but I think that that's probably what, uh, the person asking is doing because that is the more common, uh, the more common, uh, service offering that exists so then you have somebody who is qualified to do their job uh, trust that process and uh, yeah follow follow that uh, more so than you follow what we say on this podcast or what you read online because you already have that foot in the door with an, an actual expert that is getting to know you personally and your specific case all right, so the next question is from Chris, who's asking about muscle fiber composition, so fast-twitch or slow-twitch fibers. Uh, he asks, how do you estimate your muscle fiber composition? I've heard that you are more fast-twitch oriented if you're better at shorter efforts than longer ones. Is this a good way of judging your muscle fiber composition if you're not willing to do a muscle biopsy? What if you're better at short efforts on the bike than long ones? but you underperform in short efforts on the run or on the swim compared to long ones? Um, yeah, I think most people won't do a muscle biopsy to see if you're faster or slow twitch. But um, I would say your own history can tell a lot. Um, if you, like myself, I've I've done years of sprinting, uh, soccer, um handball all like very very fast twitchy sports <laughs> um so and I, th- I think this already can tell you something about um how your body responds um yeah and and tells you tells you something more about that composition and certainly when you see in training sessions like like uh like chris is saying um better in shorter efforts on the bike than longer ones yeah that's probably already a, a sign that you're a, a more fast twitch person kind of person and need maybe some other kind of training than doing lots of sprints and stuff um yeah um i don't, I don't know michael do you do you have something else on, on that yeah um, I, have, I have some things to add i think i agree with with what you said um I think that it's important to distinguish. We don't. We're not interested in knowing like what exactly is your muscle fiber composition, but what we're interested in is knowing like what is your athletic profile. So, and that is, and and also because that can inform training decisions. So, so it doesn't really help us if we know that you're seventy percent slow twitch or sixty percent slow twitch because we don't have the information to 
do anything different based on that information. But uh, but anecdotally, we kind of we, we know that okay, a certain type profiles of athletes they might need more recovery, they might need more of a certain type of intensity and less of another type of intensity. So so actually. So as you say, there is no need to do a biopsy, but knowing your history, knowing knowing about your own body and and your own uh, performance in across those ranges is important. And uh, and I think that a very a formal way of doing that is with a critical power test, and especially on the bike, because as Chris alludes to, the swim and the run can be different than than cycling for example because they are more technical like even running if you ask a go and talk with a sprinting coach and they will tell you just how much technique is involved in the way that a sprinter trains well go and ask david who has done that <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, and swimming of course we all know is super technical so so it's not necessarily the sprinting in swimming and sprinting and running is not necessarily energy limited as much as it's just force application limited whereas cycling is more everybody's more or less of a similar efficiency and the efficiency is not super dependent on intensity anyway so a critical power test on the bike uh, is quite a good way of getting a, a profiling done that is where you control for as many variables as possible so i like to do a, a three minute test and a 20 minute test and sometimes uh, i also add a six minute test to that if you want to get some extra precision and then basically you can calculate your critical power and your w prime and that w prime is a a measure a, quanti- a quantification of your uh, let's say anaerobic energy and and that number i think can tell you something about your profile for example in, among triathletes i find that people that are in the middle of the range from more like slower twitch dominant to be, if we want to call them that versus faster twitch dominant the ones in the middle of the range tend to be maybe about 20 male triathletes uh male amateur triathletes and uh, the ones that are more slow twitch dominant tend to be maybe more towards 15 and the ones that are more fast twitch dominant more towards 25 this changes in other disciplines if you go to cyclocross or criterium racing of course you will have different kind of benchmarks but this is what i've seen anecdotally uh, and it, it is anecdotally and it is also different for females i would say that for a female middle of the range would be more like closer to 15 maybe 16 and uh and so on like 20 would be quite a high w prime for a or a higher w prime for a female so so you can use w prime as an example and uh one one thing that i've seen in the literature is to use a, a wingate test so like a 30 second all-out effort but not a paced effort so you actually just start sprinting as hard as you can on the bike and then you just keep doing it for and your power will drop of course but you do it until 30 seconds is up as hard as you can then after three minutes, you take a lactate sample, and the maximum lactate there has been shown to correlate quite well with muscle fiber typology. So if you have a your maximum lactate is is six after at the three minutes after that test, then you're probably very slow twitch dominant. But if it's sixteen, then you're or if it's twenty, then you're very fast twitch dominant. But even yeah, ten would maybe be middle of the range. 10, 11, 12. If you're getting closer to 15 or above then you're very fast which dominant and if you're more like six seven as your maximum then that's quite quite low i also think that it is important to know because um um of course for triathlon you want to be a bit more on the on the slow twitch uh, side of things but you need everything and important to know is i think that it takes time to train this to to be to become more slow twitch uh, dominant um so it's good to know this that you can like act soon enough with with uh, certain training sessions um yeah um, 
Yeah, yeah, and I think that there is this is definitely an area of research that I find really interesting that is coming up now more and more, and and there is some some interesting studies that have been done already with things like how do people that are more fast twitch dominant react to increasing volume versus slow twitch dominant fast twitch dominant athletes. What we've seen in some studies is that they might not react as well to that they might basically overreach like non-functionally overreach whereas slow twitch dominant can handle that uh that increase in in volume load so so that's an example if if i was a a football uh, or let's say a soccer coach then i would be all over this stuff because there where you have athletes on from the different spectrums of very slow twitch to very fast twitch even though the slow twitch slow twitch footballers can still run pretty fast uh, because that's what they they have to do they're trained to do that but uh but there things like hamstring injuries have been correlated to muscle fiber typology so i think in in those sports there's even more use for it but in triathlon i think things like vol response to volume need for recovery uh those sorts of things are some even to some extent yeah the workouts that you might respond better to i, I think are quite yeah are there they are interesting at least the profile that you find can give you a starting point for where do you where, where where do you start your your training process in in those aspects but i think probably the most important one is the the ones that are more let's say fast which profiles they are more they fatigue more easily or they are res, less resilient to fatigue perhaps they are also more like they can produce more power so it's not like a bad thing but it's you just have to be aware of that and take that into account in the training process uh, all right so let's move on to the next question this one is from vicky who asks with covid colds flus winter illnesses etc what is your advice to people who you coach when they get ill i'm sure most people want to get back to training sooner than sooner than is advisable it's very easy to feel the pressure to get back to training or the guilt of not training but i'm sure it often delays recovery what do you recommend you're in the perfect position yeah. to, to answer yeah, oh. indeed, indeed indeed yeah there's only one way you need to take it easy um of course we're all athletes well i am um and we all want to train and we all think that after okay uh, after having had three days uh, of the flu or, or a week of COVID, we all, we all think that we can we can get back to training in like one to two days um, it's something you need to watch out for, for certainly with COVID, I would say, because, um, yeah, maybe because of, of, of um, inflammation of, of the heart and, and stuff like that. So I would say all with the flu too, you need to watch out. You just need to get very gradual into training. That first week after sickness will be an easy week. I think it's best to take it easy with um, easy endurance work. Um, look at your own heart rate. How is it reacting? Maybe by the end of the week, um, do some pickups. Uh, see see if your heart rate reacts well. Um, and, and if it drops well uh, um, uh, after having done a sort of a surge or a pickup. Um, so, but yeah, gradually, very easy. Um, maybe it's better to do a bit more shorter stuff than, than immediately go for a one hour 30 run. Um, that's at least how I would do it. Uh, um, have a few 30, 45 minute runs. Um, um, take it easy. Yeah. Give your, give your body the time again to, to like warm up. Take that first week after sickness as sort of a warm up week. Um, yeah. Uh, watch, watch out um yeah 100 i think a way that i used to kind of try to 
uh, I guess, get some buy-in into that, exactly what you say, is to try to explain it in a way that when you're sick, your body is spending all of its energy and its resources to to try to fight off that illness, that virus or infection or whatever it is. So, So when it's using all of the energy and resources on that, then even if you could go and do a run, then you don't have the the energy and the resources to actually adapt to the run because adapting to training that requires resources that's the same thing that if you deprive yourself of fuel of food or nutrition then you also don't adapt to training for the same reason you don't have the the building blocks to uh to then yeah get stronger and uh so so basically um yeah you might be able to do the training but you're not going to get stronger and and you're going to use resources that could otherwise have been used to fighting off the illness to then instead go and train and and your recovery will be delayed for that reason so it's better to uh focus on just first getting healthy and then you start training and then you do what david said and see that first week after illness as uh yeah warming up warming back into things and uh, taking it easy uh shorter more frequent shorter not more frequent but shorter workouts and low intensity uh, and uh, then eventually you'll start feeling like yourself in those low intensity workouts and then you can probably try to to ease back into intensity again but yeah i think that uh, as an explanation for why it doesn't make sense to train when you're sick it's because uh, you can do it but you won't adapt anyway and and you will probably delay recovery because you're using resources where they should be used elsewhere so uh, the next question is from paul who's asking i have recently started using some lactate testing for bike and run my lt1 for running is five minutes 22 seconds per kilometer or 8.38 per mile, at a heart rate of 144. But is this the pace that I should target for LT1 runs, or is is it the pace that I should target for LT1 runs or the heart rate? Sometimes I can run at 5-minute pace for a heart rate of 144, sometimes at 5.30, depending on time of day, fatigue, sleep, etc. Yeah, indeed, the heart rate is very variable. So it isn't easy to follow heart rate if you want to, well, let's say... um, it, it's for every for every intensity in fact that you need to follow or want to follow to run at it's it's hard to um to listen to heart rate it's good to look at it but i would say if you if you are talking specifically about lt1 what i try to do more and more with my athletes okay we have a specific pace with a specific heart rate but it will never be the same it changes from day to day is the same with lt2 is the same with other um yeah, other physiological thresholds. So you need to listen to your body. Um, if you want to run at uh, 5.22 minutes a K, you think that's your LT1, but it feels like like this is too hard and, and, and you're like breathing heavily more than you should, you can't really talk anymore, then you need to say, okay, no, this is not my LT1 today. So yes, you need to adapt. So I can only say, um, don't only run at 5.22 a K, no. Um, every time you do an LT1 session, yeah, do some talk test and and um, try to find that feel of what is approximately my aerobic threshold and think of, okay, yeah, I'm below it. Um, I can really easily talk. I have some breathing. My breathing is a bit up, but it's okay. So, um, yeah, I, I think it changes. It changes every day. And um, so it's normal that that's at Sometimes heart rate might be at uh, 144 for a, for a faster pace or slower pace. Um, you need to look at all the parameters. You can't just look at pace. 
it is an important one. I like to use pace because everything is about speed. You, you like speed on the bike too. But um, yeah, you need to look at the different thresholds and certainly listen to your body and that RPE feel. Um, yeah, that's mm. what I think. Yeah. I, I mostly agree, uh, but I have some things that I disagree with, and that's good. We talked before that uh, hopefully we have some disagreements because uh, we <laughs> we know from listener feedback that when we agree too much, that's not uh, that's not super good listening. <laughs> so uh, I also I prefer RPE as the primary metric, so learning to feel that that effort, as you say. I yeah pace at the end of the day things is it is about pace as you say but but at the same time when you are doing like when you I, I would say that when you get to like race specific work then it's all about pace to some extent but for if your target is to do an aerobic run an lt1 run or whether it's a zone 2 run or a zone 1 run uh then and especially earlier in the year uh, i would say i would actually think that heart or i would say that heart rate is better than pace uh, also, because then you can just, it doesn't matter if you're running on a hilly a hilly route or a flat one, or you're going and running on some trails, you can still get the same work done. And uh, and we all, often talk about things like heart rate varies a lot from day to day. I would say pace varies from day to day, if, because if I go and run at 130 beats per minute, then one day my pace is one thing and the next day it's something compl- uh, something different. So So it's not that heart rate is bad, it's is that we have an in- internal and an external um uh, we have an internal uh, stress and and an external load and yeah the, we for the same basically for the same internal load sometimes you can go faster and sometimes you can go slower but but the internal load is still the internal load so so and that is what tells us how how hard the body is working uh it doesn't tell us how fast we're running but how hard the body is working so so i think that that is really important especially for the low intensity runs so i I often prescribe uh the low intensity runs like zone one zone two including up to to lt1 as primarily a, an rpe target but then the secondary target is a heart rate but it's a heart rate range it's not it's not 144 beats per minute but it might be 140 to 145 or even 135 to 145 usually like a 10 beats per minute range is is fine it doesn't have to be super precise or specific and and i think it's if you have a certain objective with your run it's generally better to undershoot it rather than overshoot it so so you want to kind yeah, of work from yeah, below i totally agree with that. It. yeah, yeah. But I, I have an example where I completely messed this up recently because I I was doing a, a threshold run. Uh, I was doing it on the treadmill, and uh, and my I I know that basically my my threshold heart rate is one hundred fifty beats per minute, and and I had been doing for the last couple of weeks. I'd been doing the same workout or a similar workout at three forty per kilometer pace, and it had been fine. Heart rate was one hundred fifty. This is LT two, not LT one. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then that particular day. It just felt quite hard. Like RPE was an eight uh, for quite short mm-hmm. threshold intervals, and heart rate went up to 160, 160 plus. And I just stuck to my pace. I kept that pace on the treadmill, yeah, 340. Yeah, yeah. And then I came home and I and I started thinking that that was that was stupid. I was just running way too hard for what my body was capable yeah, of on the yeah. day, and I should have followed my heart rate and RPE. But I followed the pace, and it made me do a different workout than I had planned to do. Yeah. Yeah, but you're totally you're right because that happens a lot um, with athletes that I have um, who live in in 
places where it gets really hot. Um, like in Texas in, in the summer, it's really hot. And they, if you give them paces, they'll, well, they'll stick to the pace. And you'll see heart rate go up, go up, go up. So that's also a good moment where you need to, yeah, better listen maybe to your heart rate and, and, and certainly your feel, um, because you're pushing it just too hard. Um, to, to, to pick in on, on, on what you just said about, uh, about yourself. Um, so yeah, heart rate, certainly. Yeah, it is important. It is important though. You indeed, it's not that you can only look at, at your pace. That's true. They're all very variable. Um, I would even say, I, I think more and more, in fact, because I use it myself a lot, but I think more RP is so important. Just that feel that once you know your body, you really know that you are like, yeah, close to that LT2 or LT1. And then when you look at your watch and you see pace or heart rate, yeah, you're pretty close to, to what it is. And, and so it's so, so, so important. I would, I would say you can be a very good athlete just by running on feel, yeah. riding on feel. I think you can. And that's a, a lot of athletes still like that. Um, of course, with technology and 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 all the stuff, uh, we all like to to look at our watches and and things. But it's a it's a huge and important, I think. Yeah, no, and it's it's so fascinating because there's some interesting like stories from the what is it called the the running boom, which was I think in the late was it the late seventies when like Frank Shorter and the likes were active in the like marathon uh yeah. winning like taking marathon uh, olympic medals and so on and then in the u.s the running boom started and and a lot of like basically uh, amateurs started running marathons like a lot it's still a small amount compared to now but there were so many people that were so fast you look at how many people ran sub 230 in boston marathon in 1980 and it's so many more than it is now even though we have all this technology and all this knowledge yeah, 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 yeah. but but yeah something is something is different and of course our lifestyles are completely different and that's probably a big factor Mo much more people had physical jobs and that that helps mm -hmm. uh probably uh, it can hurt as well but uh but i think that that's that's one factor but but yeah it, it just shows that you can be fast without yeah. with, without the numbers if you just know your body really well and i really like rpe is the most important uh the most important one to me to to learn to use like i don't i generally don't run looking at my watch neither neither pace nor heart rate except if i'm doing some specific like intervals then i'm then i'm doing that but i'm still also using rpe mostly yeah. and then just checking in every once in a while on the on the watch but any easy any easy Same run here. is just like just rpe just feeling yep. um all right so the next question what this is one from scott by the way what do you think of big day training like one hour swim five hour bike two hour run on the same day but with 90 minutes and something to eat in between each i'm intrigued because i think a one hour run off the bike in an ironman prep doesn't replicate the ironman race enough i know there's always a fine line with trying to simulate a race of such duration duration so i'd love your thoughts um big day training um yeah i'm not against it certainly not but i would also not agree with um uh, saying that you really need it for example that you need to run two hours of a long bike to be able to have a good ironman 
Um, that's something that I, I certainly not think. Um, it's it's all about how you make your session. You can do a, a five hour ride with a lot of Ironman or or harder than Ironman stuff, and and then have a shorter run, thirty minutes to to up to an hour, but make it a tempo run, make it harder than Ironman race, and you'll feel how it feels at the end of an Ironman. So. Um, <clears throat> But it's certainly nothing wrong. You can't do it like every other week. Um, I think if you want to get the best out of those days, you'll need some recovery going into it and some recovery, of course, after it. Um, but it's probably something, it's, it's a good training. Uh, certainly, it's a long day out there. It replicates a bit how the Ironman will be for sure. And mentally, it could be very, um, um helpful that you need some co- some kind of of training um and and also yeah some something which is also very important is like uh, on on the on the nutritional side um testing how how the how the gut is working uh, when you have done some well a long day out there um are you coping with all the food so um I'm, I'm certainly not against it i don't use it that much certainly not two hour runs because i'm also i'm always a bit uh hesitant with injury um per, well i don't want my artist to get injured of course so um but um yeah i'm I, you can certainly use it um yeah yeah, I have to say, I, I really get where Scott is coming from with when he's saying that a one-hour run doesn't seem to replicate the Ironman race enough. I get yeah. what he's saying, because I feel like whether it's in training or in the race, uh, you do see a lot of athletes saying that, oh, like if, let's say, it's a one-hour run off a long bike, I felt great. It was amazing. This is my Ironman pace. Or is he in the race? The first hour was great. And then the wheels come off very soon after that. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why, yeah, yeah. but it seems to happen quite quite often after that. So um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Like it's something that you can do potentially. But I'm also very. I'm, I I don't necessarily prescribe that. I do prescribe big days to like first timers, especially, and also people that maybe haven't really done a good Ironman yet. They maybe failed in pacing or nutrition hydration because I think a big day. But w- normally, what I would do would be a one hour swim, four to five hour bike, and a one hour run. So not a two hour run that he mentions, and and this would be more to. Just make sure that you have the pacing right, all of the logistics, including like even things like how do you not get chafing or like any kind of uh, aches and pains, how do you avoid those sorts of things. So so for that perspective, pacing, nutrition, hydration, logistics, I think it can be really important for people that that are a bit a bit newer or still have lots of uh, learning opportunities on the Ironman distance. For people who are a bit more advanced, I I don't really use this kind of big day, but of course for them it's more normal, quite regular that you would do like let's say like a four hour ride and a up to a one hour run or a five hour ride and up to a one hour run. So so they do relatively big days more often. Um, one thing that I have used with some more advanced athletes also is to do maybe a bit of a shorter ride like three hours or even or up to four hours but with more ironman intensity and then a two-hour ride after that to still make the overall duration i mean of course it's long it's five six hours but but it's not a five-hour ride or a six-hour ride plus a two-hour run but it's shortening the ride a little bit and lengthening the run to get that 
that sense of uh, okay, okay, are we really on the right track with the running pacing strategy? But but that I would only do with uh, athletes that I know are very robust and injury resilient on the run. I wouldn't do it with athletes that are injury prone. Yeah. Plus, you might if you, if you want to eventually plan such a long long day. Um, I think you, you need to keep in mind the, the progress, the progressive overloading. So I, I mean, some weeks before, uh, work your way into that, um, uh, with a three hour bike and, and a one hour 15 run and then a three hour 30. So don't do it out of, okay, you're doing 10, 12 hours a week and then suddenly you, you throw in such a big day. Um, I, I wouldn't do it like this neither. Um, you can give the body time to adapt to such a thing. Yeah. 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 And also don't, don't do many of these, like do one oh. or two in your Ironman build and uh, the ma- maximum. Yeah. They'll give a lot of fatigue. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's it. Uh, so let's take uh, some shorter questions that we got from the Instagram stories. So by that, the nature of that platform, these are quite short. The first one is why are short course triathletes able to transition to middle or long course so easily? Yeah, <laughs> good question. I would say um I I always think of um probably I'm not I'm not fully right, but if you go from short course to long course, that's like the ideal way, I would say, because you work your extremes. And let's say you try to get those extremes more towards each other when you go into Ironman, for example. So they have such a high aerobic capacity uh, by doing high-intensity work. Uh, I, I would say volume, lots of volume. So um, the, the foundation is really there um, to then <clears throat> go towards half-distance and full-distance racing. It's easier to adapt to those lower um, ranges uh, for them. And so I, I think that's a bit the reason, the fact that they are really working both uh, high ends. And probably I would also say when you think about it, um, they do probably a decent, well, a decent amount of high intensity training. So you also get a mental benefit from that. You get mentally strong. So they, they are just ready to go, um, yeah, to go longer than uh, they, they know what it means. Yeah, well, what they need, in fact, to, to go longer. So um, I think that's that might be a reason why they are so good at it. Well, probably not everyone, but uh, yeah, we see. I ha- yeah, I agree with all that. I have a couple other things as well to add. One is, and this is changing a bit now, because now I think more and more people are coming into long course and they have already done triathlon since they were kids. But let's say a few years ago, it was more common that people started doing triathlon at 18 and then they went straight to to long course and they got pretty good in a pretty short time whereas people in short course they had started at eight or ten so they had been doing triathlon for longer they just had that like lifetime experience of training and then when they move up to long course they uh, yeah they, they're just that slightly slight level above basically because they have done it for such a long time um and then the the second one is that just the com- yeah, the competitiveness the level is just higher in short course triathlon i mean long course triathlon it's amazing like the top level is really amazing but the depth isn't quite the same as it is in short course like so, so the person who is 50th in a wtcs race is 
unbelievably good, an unbelievably good athlete. And, and you can't really say that for most uh, Ironman races or Central 3 races in the same way. So, so yeah, it's, I think it's just, even though the level is really fa- quickly rising and it's al- already really, really exceptional in middle distance triathlon, long course triathlon, it's, it's still a level higher in short course triathlon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then the next question, uh, actually this one I missed. I haven't, I don't have an answer to it. It's what is the question you wish you asked to someone oh. this year? I assume this is on the podcast and I haven't, uh, full of an answer. Do you have an answer like outside of <laughs> hosting a podcast? Of course. Um, you mean what, what I would ask like, um, <laughs> to someone on a pod who was on the podcast or, or yeah, perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, what would you, ask? yeah, yeah, I, uh, um, yeah, may- maybe like someone, well, it would be about critical power. Um, I- I'm not sure about the specific question, but uh, some more info about how to use critical power, critical velocity in training. I use it a lot myself. I'm mostly focused on that. But, um, yeah, maybe a podcast working around that just to to hear other other people's um, ideas how to use those yeah yeah critical power and then like uh, working around LT one LT two uh, in in relation with that um, that might be might be an idea. Uh, it's not a, a specific question, but um, something yeah about that. Uh, yeah, the, the training around critical power, how to use it yeah. uh, in, in training, uh, critical velocity, um, fatigue threshold stuff, stuff like that. Yeah, mm. yeah, uh, that could be a, maybe an episode for next year. <laughs> you, you'll need so, to find someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have some thoughts on that. I, I maybe I'll, yeah. I'll put something okay, together. Okay, super. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> it's yeah. But uh, what what question I would have asked somebody? I guess it's a bit recency bias. It was the last episode, Craig Kirk with the coach of Hayden Wild. Uh, I wish I'd asked him the power Hayden Wild pushed in seventy three <laughs> Melbourne, <laughs> because that would just be really interesting to know. Because he rode a one fifty six, and and it's not as if he had a lot of time on the time trial bike. They, he said that they had worked on the velodrome when he was in Europe, yeah. but still not a lot of training. So I'm wondering what power he was pushing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you'll need to call him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, the next one. Do 30-30 workouts work, and how should one pro- progress them and increase reps time and rest? Well, I, I at least I hope they work, <laughs> as I'm using them more and more. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure they work. Uh, I, I, I think uh, Ben Tromstad already shown this. Um, in, in oh, he did it with the 30-15s, but Verona yeah, indeed, indeed, has a lot of 30-30s yeah. uh, that she's yeah. investigated. Yeah, uh, what was the question again? Um, and how what to progress? Uh, yeah, how to progress. Good question. How to progress? I would start. Um, what I typically do is is a few sets, like three sets of nine times thirty thirty. I, I mostly use thirty fifteens, but uh, nine times thirty fifteen have three minutes recovery, and then again do three sets like this. And this is something, of course, you can easily build up over the weeks. Um, making sure you get around uh, that twelve to twenty minute of VO two work, I would say, um, build it up from there. You can start with thirty thirteens too, and then get <clears throat> get the recoveries down. So that's also a, a way of progressing things. Um, yeah, that's a bit mm. how I would uh, do that. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So my answer, yes, they definitely do work. I, I don't I don't assign 3030s almost ever. I, I prefer 3015s, but 3030s for sure yeah. would work. I do it more for running, for like running fartleks. I do 3030s. I mean, technically, maybe it's not a fartlek if it's structured like that, but kind of a fartlek, a bit more based on feeling in terms of the speed and so on. So, so in that sense, I do use 3030s. But yeah, with cycling, I prefer 3015s or sometimes 6030s or 40 sorry 6040s as well which is another genestad workout but yeah basically uh, if the objective is vo2 max development then i like that with shorter intervals to have that two to one work to rest ratio and with longer intervals like it's two minutes or so then, it's, then i like to use a one to one work to rest ratio so yep. two minutes on two minutes off and and so on um but but anyway yeah they they work uh, for sure and how to progress them Again, it would depend because some people use 30-30s maybe depending on the sport in, let's say, cycling disciplines, uh, criterium racing and so on. You could use them for very different things. But but in triathlon, I, I would think that uh, you're using them for VO2 max development. And in that case, I would make sure that you have uh, 20 minutes of total work and maybe try to see if you can even progress beyond that. So uh, you could do it in sets as David uh, did or you can do it in one like long um, long set yeah. basically until exhaustion almost yeah. yeah until exhaustion that's something that uh, when uh, I was coached by David Tilbury Davis we did a lot of 60 okay. until exhaustion so that's an oh. interesting one yeah. I just <laughs> did one with uh, with an athlete of mine uh, till exhaustion 13 uh, 30 15s so yeah. uh, I'm not yeah. sure how many he got in but uh, yeah <laughs> yeah he just yeah. likes it and, yeah but I, I think that when you get to twenty minutes, that's kind of what of total yeah. work. So that would be mm-hmm. um, that, how many would that be? So forty interval, forty times thirty second intervals. Yeah. Uh, then, then at that point, you can either increase to some more total work, or you can start increasing intensity. But with thirty fifteens, I can explain how I d- use them because that's kind of my go to. I would say, and I always use the or- like almost the original protocol, which is thirteen times thirty fifteen. So that ends up being a set of nine minutes. 45 seconds and and i do three of those sets but i in the original research i think had two and a half minute rest but i give five minutes rest to just get a bit more recovery because those sets are long and i i, I thought it was three form. minutes yeah. maybe yeah. three minutes yeah but i give a little bit more recovery yeah, but yeah, anyway okay. I, the yeah. the power of the 30 second intervals i tend to set to around the estimated six to eight minute mean max power that the athlete okay. can, can do mm-hmm. and then the 15 the recovery power is not it's not just coasting it's basically it's always 50 percent of that on power so if you do uh if you do 380 watts for the 30 seconds then you would do 190 watts for the 15 seconds yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then you end up with something that is uh, in the region of uh, it would be you would basically end up averaging maybe 320 watts for those nine minutes 45 but it would be in an extremely stochastic way so so it is quite hard uh, quite a hard way of averaging 320 watts for for 10 minutes and you do that three times so so it's yeah it is a hard workout but then the progression generally i because it's already like really hard three long sets of, of basically 10 minutes even though the total work of like ons is 20 20 minutes but uh, the progression would be intensity uh, basically yeah. can you can you go a bit harder yeah okay I, I would never use them for running though and uh no um, i never I'm done always that. scared of uh, yeah what 
Uh, no, I never done I that thought... either. I haven't tried that. Oh, I thought you said um, you, no. you like to use them for running. Okay. Uh, uh, no, for running for for thirty thirties, but more like fartlek, and so it's not. I don't give a specific yeah. pace. It's more like okay, five to ten k yeah, effort, still, and yeah. they, they'll they'll go hard. Um, and with recovery being so short, I'm, I well. It might be a recipe for injury. <laughs> it could be. So, I think, yeah, it, it depends on the athlete. Not not all athletes would maybe uh, be candidates for that kind of workout. But I think I think it's a good workout that works for for some athletes on running as well. But thirty fifteen, so I just wouldn't give because it's just a bit practically challenging to do. And, and also for running, I think you just need a bit more recovery than than that. It's just a little bit too short. I think you would fatigue too much to to be able to get quality running um all right uh what are the top three things that age groupers should and should not copy from pros i have i have three very a list of three short do's and don'ts so maybe i'll i'll start yeah go be super quick st- yeah you start from. yeah I don't so have the, the list. <laughs> what they what they should copy from the pros is consistency keeping things simple and fueling in training and uh what they should not copy from pros is oh i have two volume and intensity so you don't you don't do the same volume, yeah. you don't do the same intensity. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree. They shouldn't copy that because I think they have so much time to train, and that's in fact yeah. the big difference. They have the time to train, train hard, train long, and then recover from it, and that's their job. So never copy that because for us it's not our job, and um, uh, yeah. So so you can't just copy uh training sessions from them don't don't try hitting their power numbers neither um just for uh, just for the fun of it um no you 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 can't do that so um um yeah do you have any any other things do you have any things that they should copy anything different so maybe uh, did you say uh, recovery? Well, I mean, they're, they're no, I didn't say recovery. I didn't. I didn't say recovery specifically. I said yeah. no. I, I said fueling. I, I think that might also be something. They, of course, like I said, they have the time to focus on it. But for us, it's also important to know mm-hmm. we need to recover so that we might not sometimes don't make it too hard, so that you still have a bit of time too to recover. Uh, so the focus on recovery they they have is also something we can. Uh, um yeah we can focus on um yeah fueling you said fueling that, that one i had to and con- certainly consistency um is a uh, is one you need to take over yeah for the rest um did i yeah no um no i didn't have anything else all right let's go to the next one this one is uh, an interesting one what should a competitive age group do with a two to three thousand euro budget and six months to improve their aerodynamics <laughs> what I, I wrote down invest in arrow edge <laughs> because you know yeah if you have a budget we should we should we should we should clarify arrow edge is yeah, uh, the company founded by bernardo gonzalves who has been on the podcast he's a friend of mine and he's not affiliated with scientific triathlon but of course yeah, yeah. Um, i trust him and some scientific triathlon athletes have tested with him and i, I do test with him regularly so yeah, but it's it's not for uh, for the marketing of it, or uh, um, it's it just because I had athletes. I have athletes who have invested in it, and I have seen the results. And um, so, if you have some money on the side, I would say um, 
invest in arrow edge or, or something else but try to to gain arrow arrow gain is very important um it can help you um gain a lot of speed i would say and 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 save a lot of energy it's about quality testing right and doing it with an expert yeah, uh, so yeah, yeah true so yeah. because this is this is not something that you can learn to do well in a weekend of self-education like i've been to i've done a lot of error testing but i couldn't provide this kind of service um, because i don't have the knowledge and and i have invested a lot more in it than than most people and and spent a lot of time with it um so so yeah finding a good expert that you can test with Mm -hmm, and another mm -hmm. thing that i i would also say is i would not recommend going to the wind tunnel because going to the wind tunnel, you would test in what you f- might think is your real position, but maybe it isn't the position that you actually ride in. So I would say go to the velodrome or test on the road. And ideally, you bo- do both because they both have pros and cons. The road is like really, really how you will be riding in the real world. Uh, but yeah. the velodrome is a bit more sensitive to find the smaller differences. So so if you can do both, then that's great. But um Otherwise, choose one of them. Don't choose the wind tunnel because mm-hmm. that's also going to be the most expensive way of testing, but the the least useful. Um, so yeah, investing in quality quality testing. And then actually, so I did to prepare for this question. I did ask Bernard for his thoughts, uh, not besides testing. So just in terms of like equipment upgrades and so on. Mm-hmm. And he said that the number one on the list would be to look at any accessories that would allow you to obtain a better position. So things like spacer types reach wedgers different tt extensions or elbow pads saddles if there's a problem in that area and cranks uh number two on the list would be t- uh racing tires that's a really yeah. good of, of course value for money investment uh number three would be wheels and number four would be helmet and custom fitting clothing so he's pointing out that it's not so much about the or it's not about the fabric quality per se uh, but it's about uh, but tailored suits uh, that are tailored to you um but uh, this is though where i would point out i haven't had a tailored suit done for me at all but i would also say that i've done testing with different suits and one thing that you don't think of necessarily when you do testing and you find that one suit is faster than another is what is the impact of that suit on your swim so uh, so for example i've tested suits that were really fast on the bike but then i couldn't swim properly in them <laughs> so i kept coming back to a Roka suit that I felt really comfortable and good in swimming. I could swim well in, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't the absolute fastest. It was reasonably fast aerodynamically, uh, but but it was just the one that I really and I, I I also did testing in the pool to see okay which suit do I actually swim faster in. And I found that well the aero gains that I get from another suit do not make up for the losses that I have on the swim. So so okay. that's something to consider when it comes to the the suits something something yeah. to that I wanted to point out there. Uh because I have used a faster aerodynamic suit in a race and then just ruined my race because my swim was so so poor. <laughs> because the suit was too tight or or what? Yeah, it was too tight in the shoulder area. I just felt a complete lack of mobility and I f- yeah, okay. and I feel like that's often you often hear people complain about a wetsuit being tight but i think that half of the time it's not necessarily the wetsuit that is tight but it's the, the tri suit that is tight and uh, and it's because even when when we go train in a wetsuit in the open water or in the pool we often don't use the tri suit under the wetsuit so my advice is whenever you train in the wetsuit train in the wetsuit and the tri suit so you can figure out if you have a tri suit 
problem in the uh, in terms of mobility. Yeah, yeah. That was a bit of a side point, but but hopefully a, a useful one. So uh, yeah, that was uh, a good question, and that brings us back to the question sent in by email. So some of them are a bit longer, uh, and this one is a three-parter from uh, I believe it's Paul William William. What what are your proudest achievements as an athlete, and what are some goals you have for your own performance? That's one for you. <laughs> It's for you. You start. <laughs> oh, proudest achievements as an athlete. <clears throat> um, for for me personally, it would be that I reached some of my goals, but um, by coaching myself. So, like, uh, yeah, certain races, you get some podiums. I did Hawaii. I did. Uh, World champs and, and then some other local races where I got some very good results at that would be like uh, for me yeah my proudest achievements and and having reached that as a as a coaching myself which might be a bit easier than, than coaching someone else because you can adapt every day so uh, so yeah that's a uh, that's for me and and then what are some goals for the <clears throat> I have? For my own performance, I'm not sure if I still have that many goals, but um, I, I think my goal is always to to do really good and get on a podium, um, an age group podium, I mean. And um, so, yeah, for me, those are, are the biggest ones. Uh, hmm. Yeah. My proudest achievement was probably this summer. I was third overall in the Portuguese full distance championships uh did an 848 and uh, so i was happy with the the, nice. the position and the time and uh i didn't officially get the 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 bronze medal i got it for the race but not for the national championships because i don't have citizenship even though i'm married to portuguese and i have been here for six years so i could apply for it i haven't done so yet so yeah, okay. so yeah i'm not in the official list for the portuguese national championships but I, i'll take that actually as a moral moral third place and uh, my goals for the future i actually only have one goal that i think is like a strong goal that okay i really would want to do i think i know what it is (laughs) yeah yeah, let me know like what do you think it is i i think it's it's uh sub four yeah yeah it's sub four i want to i want to go sub four for the half distance i've done 401 and i would like to go sub four any bucket list races or events that you have your eyes on? Uh, well, f- for me, I'm, I'm doing one in the Pyrenees Mountains, who's close to my heart, in fact, uh, in a, a bit of an extreme race. So that's one for 2024. I've already done it. it. Is it the Bear Man? No, 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 no. It's not yeah. the one with the late lows. No, it's yeah. called Altriman. Uh, Altriman, right. and it has, it has a lot of elevation, 5,000 plus, and then 1,000 on the run. Which is mostly a road running, uh, maybe twenty percent uh, with some light trails, but yeah, it's it's long, it's it's always climbing. It's what I like, and uh, yeah, it's it's a very nice race. So that's my that's my big one. Mm. Um, for me, anything that involves a bike. I don't like to fly with a bike. I like to go to races that I can drive to. So I mostly stay within Portugal and Spain. But if there's one triathlon that I'd 
fly to that I would say as okay, that would be a bucket list triathlon. I'm not sure I will do it, but this is the one that appeals to me. It's the Alp to S triathlon. That would be really okay. Fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's cool. Um, outside of triathlon, there are actually a lot of interesting things. I think that mm-hmm. at some point when I get a bit uh, tired of, of focusing on triathlon for me personally uh then i will probably do a lot more like trail running and yeah. swim run maybe so uh, so yeah there's a ton of things that would be interesting there but if i had to pick one i would say that a bucket list race would be the madeira island ultra trail which is a 115 kilometer race on madeira with 7100 meters of elevation and madeira is just a fantastic like the most beautiful place yeah, in the world i think beautiful. for me yeah. Yeah. so so that one is one i would do yeah great great yeah i also like uh trail trailing but uh maybe not that much the races but um more just going going running yeah. in the yeah. in the mountains yeah now uh william also has a series of questions about threshold training uh let's do the first one quickly because i don't think it's super um it's not our expertise necessarily what is the biological stimulus that occurs when doing threshold training um yeah i would say um i think it's talking about physiological responses yeah, of of, yeah, of, of yeah. threshold training i would say all the all the physiological physiological responses from general training but maybe if you would train high intensity it might be a bit more well you might have more of that so um yeah aerobic capacity goes up mitochondrial content uh, goes up all, all that stuff uh, so yeah very very general yeah. in fact um yeah it's like it's like like most training is like it's not there are no like light switches that you go from one intensity to the next and then it's something completely different it's more like okay intensity goes up then you get maybe a bit more stronger stimulus but of the same things but you can of course do that for a shorter time and the overall training effect is often a combination of um, yeah, intensity and duration and finding the, the balance there. But yeah, it's, I mean, threshold is still a very aerobic intensity. So it's aerobic training with all of the aerobic adaptations, but it's, I guess you do that with a lot of muscle fiber recruitment, I would say, because yep. Uh, yep. so, so that's an, an, a high energetic demand, but that can still be sustained for a long time. So, so I would say yeah. that's maybe a very important one with threshold training, the, the, the muscle fiber recruitment, um, yeah, I think that's that's really important one uh, mm. um, to to yeah to know. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And making so, but we can yeah. The the next one is a bit uh, easier to answer uh, very clearly. Is threshold training done in the heavy or severe domain? And that is well, heavy. So yeah, well, for me, it it, 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 okay. it depends. Well, I mean, no, it it, it doesn't depend, but. Uh, you can have like heavy till let's say LT2 or heavy till critical power. But of course, if you go into the severe domain, you'll also train your threshold. So, right, yeah, yeah. but if you say, okay, I'm going to focus really on, yes, let's say around that threshold. If the heavy domain would be till critical power, then you could say, okay, I train around my LT2 as threshold training specific threshold training and then you're staying in the heavy domain uh um, yeah if, if heavy is still critical power if you say okay heavy is still lt2 and then above lt2 you have a severe domain till uh till, till critical power or till till vo2 max um then it would be both 
because you can train threshold below what they do, you can train it uh, above it too. And and even like I say, in, in in much higher intensities, you also work your threshold. So it's it's a mix, in fact. Uh, so yeah. I, I I'm not necessarily I don't necessarily agree that you can say okay, it's heavy. Um, mm. I think it's again, it depends on how you see the things, <laughs> how you see the zones, uh, and there's also a lot of discussion there. I, I would say. Um, no, you're right. Agree. You're right. No, <laughs> you're no, you're you're right. You're you're right. It's it's, <laughs> it's it. You're, that's that's a great argument. I I guess that philosophically, for me, like let's say if I prescribe threshold workouts, yeah, then I I err on the side of the intensity that is up to, but mostly like a bit below what I perceive yeah. as threshold, then we have all sorts of problems. Like what is threshold? Well, it's not a single point. We already talked about that. It's a range. Indeed. So how do you know? You don't know exactly. It doesn't matter. That That's not the point. So, and as you say, if you go a bit above it, you're still training your threshold. But I think it, philosophically, that's a, a David Tilbury Davis-ism uh, that, that I learned. Philosophically, what I want to achieve with uh, with threshold training is more to accumulate duration at an intensity that is kind of your highest sustainable that you can do yeah. for quite a long time and then when you go a mm-hmm. bit above it then you're starting to fatigue much more quickly so yeah okay so, then you're so in, in, that, yeah. in, in that sense yeah. i'm for me i'm trying to prescribe threshold training as in the heavy domain rather than the uh, the severe domain yeah, yeah but but yeah i mean it all depends on a bit on how do you define things yeah. and mm-hmm. um and and you are right to say that if you train above threshold, then you also improve your threshold. Um, for me, though, I generally when I prescribe training above threshold, it's more like VO two max interval. So then the intensity is quite a bit higher. So it's not like ten watts higher, yeah. but it's depending yeah, yeah, on the yeah. length of the intervals, of course. But trying to mm-hmm. to get a bit more into the severe domain. Okay. Um, right then the next part is common proxies for threshold intensity include critical power and FTP. Does this mean threshold training uh, ought to be done between FVP and critical <laughs> power if you know both? Yeah. Well, I can yeah, give a quick answer from 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 my side here. Yeah. So, so I do critical power testing, uh, but that also includes a twenty minute test, so I can uh, kind of see what the FTP would be with a classic FTP testing methodology, kind of. But the workouts that I call threshold. Uh, I do always individualize the targets, but generally speaking, I would say 90 to 95% of critical power is where I would set them or yep. 90 to 100% for some athletes. But in, in that range, 90% of critical power is a really good a- area. To but that's because of, threshold for you is critical power. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's a range. It's a range between LT2 yeah. and critical power, basically, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Above, okay, okay. above critical power, I would say that that's, that's no longer threshold. Then you're in the severe domain above critical yeah. power for me. Yeah, but LT LT two is also is also yeah um, threshold and yeah, yeah indeed below indeed. below, below LT two is also threshold so yeah yeah <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> indeed that's what I wanted to to, to yeah. say too um, yeah. yeah yeah okay um, yeah but uh, yeah what are your thoughts on that though? where do you yeah but it's for for me you know threshold if I gives i i even don't call the sessions threshold um in my mind threshold is lt2 training how i would do it i would train below it more of sort of control threshold and i would do for example 
lactate shuttling sessions, which would be above and below. Um, so then you're then you're in between the the, the LT2 CP uh, range. So let's say my threshold range is probably somewhere in the I would say 88 to 100 percent of CP of critical power. So where I would see 88, 90, 92% maybe as LT2, but mostly around 88, 90%. I would see as as LT2. And that would be my threshold training. Um, Yeah, and you can play around that. And if you talk about accumulating time at threshold, then I would rather stay below it. And um, and, uh, yeah, like close to it, but a very controlled way of, uh, of, of threshold training. Uh, yeah, but I also would use but but, but, that, but, that, but that but that I completely agree <clears throat> with, and that's why okay, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, and and that's where like ninety percent of critical power. If that feels hard, then I go to eighty five percent. Like because yeah. there are some athletes that they can. And coming back to a bit to what we said with the more let's say fast twitch dominant athletes, and also in some cases just really advanced, really good athletes, they have like really high critical powers. But training at critical power is just really, really taxing. Then yeah, I often indeed. would go to like training at eighty-five percent of critical power, and you achieve the same the same effects. So and you can accumulate a bit more duration with with less fatigue. So so yeah, ninety percent is good for most people, but it still needs to be adjusted a bit. Then there are of course people with a bit of a narrower power range, so people with lower CP, lower FTP. Uh, if if your critical power is like 180 watts or 200 watts or something then then yeah you're going to 95 percent is is probably quite good because for that demographic it's usually not that hard to be at 95 percent compared to somebody who has a cp of 380 watts or something yeah that's true yeah yeah Yeah. um all right um let me see here. What are the co- complexities with actually measuring MLSS and LT2 and VT2? You've alluded in some of your podcasts to these values being less robust than LT1, VT1, since they're sensitive to the measurement protocol. Can you expand on this? Maybe I maybe I take this one because I, I kind of know what I said or what I meant at least. So basically, I think that the shape of a lactate curve, if you do a lactate uh, step test, is relatively consistent if you control for everything you can control. So you have a consistent kind of rest, not a taper, but like consistent fatigue or freshness levels when you do the test, consistent nutrition, so you're well-fueled and so on. But what's not consistent if you do the same lactate step test twice in a week or three times in a week is that the blood lactate values can be quite different. So so your LT2 might be within 10 watts on both of those tests. Let's say it's 300 watts on one test and 290 the other. But the blood lactate might be four on one and five on the other for for that LT2 point that you identify as an inflection point. So uh, so this is where this is a reason that I think that for example for age groupers especially, but even for pros, like unless you maybe the Norwegians are a bit different because they like measure so many variables that they might have full control of of everything. But but I think for most people, like the spot testing blood lactate is maybe not. Uh, super useful i'm not saying that it's useless but i'm saying that i think it's quite a marginal gain and maybe for most people maybe not a gain at all because blood lactate concentration is very variable and especially at higher intensity so when you get close to lt2 closer to lt1 it's less variable but but anyway 
and then whether LT2 is so in, uh, yeah at LT1 it is it is more robust the blood lactate I still don't necessarily recommend spot testing at all I think it's enough to identify what is the heart rate and the power the speed and then use that kind of heart rate and uh, RPE and power and speed to kind of use all three parameters as we talked to you before to get a range and then train in the right range also adjusting for RPE on the day but then when it comes to VT1 and VT2, so those are measured with gas exchange, with a you know, VO2 max test or like a, a gas exchange test, but usually it's com- combined with a VO2 max test. The problem with those is that often that is a ramp test and the ramps are often shorter. So sometimes they are three minutes and they take lactate tests, but you kind of rarely see them be longer than three minutes just because the time is valuable. And, and I just think that not all things have time to stabilize in three minutes, especially when you get to those higher intensities. So when you experience VT or when you see VT2 on the chart, it's often a reflection of what happened in the step before or even two steps before, like especially if you have one minute steps in the ramp test. So that's why VT1 and VT2, I think are, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into them so much, to be honest. Um, that's personal preference. I know a lot of other people who would think differently. MLSS testing in theory, I think is good, but it's just a very time consuming process. If you don't already know very kind of very closely where your MLSS will be. And if you already know very closely where, where your MLSS will be, then knowing it with an extra five to 10 watts of accuracy, I don't think it makes any sense to spend mm-hmm. that time. No, like, true. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, what are the indicators indicators that you are cor- correctly hitting threshold intensity in a session? What should you feel like after a threshold workout? Yeah, we, we might have briefly talked about it, but I would say uh, RP-wise, you're probably at the 7, 7.5 if that's... Uh, uh, 7.5 might be difficult to know what is 7.5, but it's really a controlled um, feel you're working hard um but um yeah you don't have that real lactate burn but you you know you you're working but you can hold this for a long time in fact you can accumulate a lot of time at that intensity so um yeah in feel i would say seven seven point five out of ten so yeah that's exactly where i would say as well i I like I like for athletes to do threshold workouts progressively. So let's say if it's a running workout, ten by one kilometer, I I might say something like start at half marathon effort, and if you feel good, you can gradually over the course of the repetitions you can increase potentially all the way up to ten k effort. Unless you're a really fast runner, because in that case ten k effort is too hard, then it might be more ten mile effort. But if if you're like a thirty four thirty five minute ten k runner or slower then up to 10k effort would be fine i think for the last few reps but but it would start at half marathon effort and uh and then if only if you feel good you progress so if you uh, but, but you see a lot of athletes do threshold workouts the other way like starting really hard and not being able to sustain the pace or the power and then i think you uh you you went too hard because you should be able to either maintain the same pace or or progressively increase the the pace or the power yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 also like a, as you say, there's no burn. It's it's more like a grinding fatigue, just based on the accumulated like energy expenditure or almost and just muscle contractions. But there's no there's not a burn there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a tiredness without suffering almost. Yeah. All right. So uh, final uh, 
last part of this one is what are your thoughts on threshold intervals such as hard starts over unders etc um the, the hard starts i don't really use them for for threshold work um over unders yeah i i agree i, I use them um i think they, they're really good i think even better ones are I think it's important to accumulate time at that threshold. So I would say accumulating lots of time just below LT2. Um, you can do this with, with short reps. Start with short reps. You can do pyramids. You can play a lot with it. Um, uh, what I like to give, for example, is 10 times 4, four minutes, but just with short recoveries. Um, I mean, one-minute recoveries, for example. But... Um, those yeah those are more sessions that i use but i do use over unders too i think it's important to um to to get used to 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 lactate accumulation and also the use of it in fact i mean lactate production and the use of that production aerobically um is very important and i think with over unders you can really learn your body to 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 do to become efficient really at using those fuels um and eventually, it 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 gets your uh, it gets your your threshold. So um, so yeah, um, I don't know. Hard stars. Have you do, do you see benefit of hard stars? Maybe some lactate accumulation first, and then yeah, it's a bit like an over under too. So it's a bit like an over under. I've done it as kind of just as, as race specificity. So um, basically, yeah, simulating what might happen in a race if somebody's involved in more like race dynamics where somebody will surge. And uh, and then you need to search with them, but then and then settle down. So I, I use a lot of these things in the race specific phase, and I do like over unders. It depends on distance as well. Like if, for example, we had a question about sprint distance training. I think for sprint distance, like the lactate shuttling workouts, the over unders are are really brilliant because that's kind of exactly the kind of race that the sprint distance is. Like the average intensity is basically threshold, but. Uh, but you end up spending some time where you are doing surges and things where you go just above it a bit and then you have to settle down just below or at threshold so so i think for for those distances for that distance specifically it's it's brilliant so but yeah there are lots of ways that you can do it and and it's not i it's not there, there aren't really a lot of like magic workouts so it's how do you get the work done and and in some ways it's also like what do you enjoy doing and uh and if, if some of these workouts are like really fun to you and you feel like you do well with them, then experiment with them and see see what what works. But yeah, I think I think they're all good. I I do most of the workouts I prescribe are just classic, like steady, like you mentioned, things like ten times four minutes and so on. But but I definitely use some of these other ones, especially in the race specific phase when they when they might, depending on the the athlete and the goal race, they might simulate something that might happen in the yeah, race. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, the next question. Uh, oh, I see that this is one that I haven't prepared. I missed this one. Uh, so I, I'll rely on you, David. Uh, it's from Sindre, who's asking about combining a training camp and a race. How close to a training camp should you be racing, for example, a B race? Does he mean like before a training camp? I don't know. I or think it's after. Based, the based race on after, the, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It depends, but it, it comes in, uh, he has a few other questions, but um, it depends what race it is. If it's really an A race, then I wouldn't like uh, risk a, a, a training camp. Uh, I mean, a training camp where you do all the workouts with the group as, as planned, because that will give you a training camp is, is 
will certainly give you lots of fatigue. Um, it's mostly based on volume. And um, you don't want to go too fatigued, of course, in, in a race. If it's a B or C race, I, I would say, yeah, you can certainly mix it up. You should know that you'll have some fatigue in those legs um, because tapering will be very short. But it's I, I, I would think it's doable. Um, if we're talking about an Ironman race, no, don't do that. But if we're talking about a sprint or an Olympic, having a training camp, two, two easy days, even maybe one easy days, and then race, as it's not just such an important race, but more a race to get, um, yeah, for the fun and, and just have the experience, it's good training again. It will it will give you a good knowledge of how your body reacts under fatigue. And at the same time, it's a fatigue threshold. Yeah. A fatigue threshold training. I mean, it's, it makes sense to do maybe a, a race after or a short race after a, a sort of a training camp. So it is, I, I would think it's certainly possible. You just need to know, okay, what are my priorities for that race? What do I want to achieve? Um, yeah. 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 I think, I think here, I personally, I would not want to spend 500 euros to do a, like an Ironman 70.3 to, to do a race after training camp because you have to accept that you might, you might not feel great. And uh, so actually the question is how close the training camp should be racing. But even one week after, if it's a big training camp, I wouldn't risk that. Two weeks, is that's when we start to be in the good zone because then you could do the training camp and then you just go into a two-week taper, basically, and uh, start to freshen up. And then in the week of the race or the weekend before, you can already start to do some activation sessions again. So so two weeks would be fine. One week, if it's like an important race or one that you have focused a lot on and that you're traveling to, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. But as you say, a sprinter Olympic, uh, totally, you can do that uh, right, right away. And just as a fun experiment, see how it goes and good good training. Part two, is it advisable to combine a one-week training camp with a race at the weekend? I think we kind of answered that, but yeah. yeah I think so. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, part three, how would that compromise the quality and adaptation to the training camp and or the performance in the race for Sprint Olympic and 713? Um, yeah, certainly if it would be 70.3, um, if you're talking about uh, old training camp, yeah, you, you'll need to, he will need to, to like modify the sessions. I mean, if you're planning to do five hour, four hour rides the whole time and then s still swim and run at the same time, that's 70.3 race. Yeah, you'll be fatigued. So you'll need to adapt. You'll need to make the volume a lot less, um, go with slower groups, for example. Um, so, so yeah, you might need to adapt again for, for sprint and Olympic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. It depends of you as an athlete too. Um, I think Sindre is not the big volume athlete. So yeah. for him, um, that training camp could be like, okay, sort of a shock to the body because you're doing big volume and then going into a race. Yeah, it, it might not be what the body wants, in fact, or what the body is used to. So certainly there needs to be some adaptation there um, in, in, in that week, I would think, um, if he yeah. wants to race. Yeah. Um, as for the whether it would compromise the quality and adaptation to the, to the training done, I think if you do a sprint or Olympic, 
it would be fine. Olympic would depend a bit because, of course, some athletes uh, depend on the speed on the athlete. It, an Olympic distance race can be a quite long race, but but still, it's a, compared to a training camp where you might be training for four, five, six hours. If you're doing an Olympic distance race and it's two, three, three and a half hours, then um, yeah, it's a short, shorter day, more intense day. So so I think that those two could be fine. Seven on three, then that might be that thing that puts you over the edge and makes you basically do. It too much yeah so so i wouldn't probably i wouldn't do that but yeah sprint olympic could work but i would still say that treating it as a c race and and adapting the training a little bit a couple of days before would would make sense or at least the day before um so yeah i think that also answers the next part how would you mod that's the one you answered how would you modify the camp given that the race is a b or c race yeah yeah Yeah, but yeah so I, i think i think i think i would say don't do anything else than a C race the the weekend the the week of a tra- the at the end of the week of a training camp even the week after training camp I would still say well, a race that you're doing then is a C race but if you do it two weeks after it could even be an A race because then you can go straight into taper uh, right so next question is from Paul I believe this one is uh, yeah. there are some questions about starting a coaching business uh paul which paul is interested in doing i have shortened uh, these questions as actually i have shortened a lot of these questions that i've read out <laughs> but uh, the part one is what gave you the courage to give up your standard job and start something entrepreneurial so i'll answer that first and mm-hmm. it's very simple um well knowing that there's always another job if it doesn't work out you can always go back um but what about you david what when you took the step yeah. into coaching <laughs> that was not my uh, my motivation. In fact, no. Uh, for me, it's uh, it's mostly about you. Um, yeah, you just uh, y- you need to do what you like in your life. Your your job has to be something that you really like, that you love. It's so important. I think uh, I've had jobs before that I I did like them, but they were like, yeah, you know, you have a boss, you always have to. Uh, do what they say nine to five job that's not really what i liked the most and then you start thinking what and and you are an athlete you do lots of sports and um i think that's really important um yeah liking yeah. what you do uh, no but uh, yeah yeah i'm 100 on the same page there but i think that to also to have the what what gives you the courage is also because there is there is some risk involved so i think that it, it's quite helpful for people that are thinking about this to uh, to know that because yeah you forget very easily i had to tell so many people like my family my parents and fa- people that uh, that well i mean i can always go back and do something do the same thing or something similar if it doesn't work out so it's not you're not taking a decision for the rest of your life that and and it's it's like make or break so so that's an yeah that's an important message that i would give uh part two of the question part of what makes a coaching business work is self-promotion promotion how have you evolved and grown as a marketer of yourself and your business <laughs> what challenges and lessons have you learned uh i i told you before like i saw this question i i i include because it's putting me a bit more a bit out of my comfort zone so i, I hope that that's <laughs> useful <laughs> um, yeah no but i think i think i think for me uh, early on uh and well not just early on but earlier uh i i mean i think over the years i become more confident in myself and mm-hmm. uh and and in more confident in being myself i should say that, uh, not not in myself but in being myself and not trying to i don't know live up to a certain or like try to act in a certain way and that yeah. is not necessarily myself so just just be myself really 
uh, and and I've come to think that that's the best thing that I can do because the people that might be drawn to then become customers of the business are those who are more likely to be successful with us as athletes because they share similar values and uh, I. Uh, maybe I, I don't like to say share similar values, but they are in some ways like like minded uh, at least. They they have a connection already that yeah, that makes them a good fit for the business. And uh, and and then I mean this is a quote that I I kind of come back and think of quite often. But uh, people overestimate what they can do in a year, but underestimate underestimate what they can do in ten. So so how yeah basically it's not like. I haven't done a lot of active things, but things do just grow organically when you keep doing good work, like day in, day out. And and it, you don't see it in the first year necessarily or the second year, and and it grows very slowly at, at some point. But but then yeah, it eventually pays off. But it just requires patience and consistency of indeed, of, of indeed, doing indeed, yeah. good work. And and in yeah. terms of lessons learned, I, I do want to share a, like a, a story because I once paid somebody. I think. 700 euros or close to 1000 euros uh which was a lot of money is a lot of money to do like a facebook a facebook ad campaign for for the coaching business and uh, and it didn't result in a single lead so that was a very hard earned lesson <laughs> and uh but it was a good one because it also made me reflect not just on okay that wasn't effective like that wasn't that wasn't good but it also made me reflect that do i really want to like is that really the way that is, is that really the best way to find the right customers for a business? And I realized that uh, yeah. probably not. Maybe I can like find customers there, but but I think that a lot the best customers that we have that are like become really like long term coaching clients they they tend to come from either word of mouth or the podcast listeners. Like they yeah, are the ones sure. that that already I have think some the podcast kind of trust. is already your your platform to to the outer world so um, of course yeah so it, it why do you maybe helps. need yeah. Uh, yeah. instagram or facebook yeah. uh, but but at the same time this is something that like i know like a hundred ways that i could make the podcast get a lot more downloads but that would compromise something that i don't want to change about it and that's yeah. more about yeah. the the first point about having confidence in in being myself and not trying to do things that are not myself you know yeah. so no, so right. yeah it's possible to reach more people but but maybe then you don't reach the people that are that you want to work with as well so i think yeah. that that's Im- yeah. that's important as well yeah that's a good one yeah yeah and uh the next one uh, this one i think you'll probably have some good thoughts on as well uh you and me both what if somebody is a passionate athlete but has no formal training in sports or physiology and they have no background as an athlete how might one go about becoming an endurance coach? Yeah, it's uh, honestly for myself, it's something that I have struggled with in the past because you want to you want to show how that you can coach people, athletes, and for a lot of I had I've, I've gotten a lot of questions of athletes. Uh, what's your degree? And then you think, hmm, okay, um, I have a totally different degree. But in the meantime, I also learned that that's not that doesn't show if you are a good coach or not. Um, so um, 
I think it's totally possible. Well, look at Mikael. Well, look at well, uh, look at me. Um, um, I think I do a decent job uh, without having. Oh, you um, you do a you do an amazing <laughs> job. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but uh, thanks. But I I think it's totally possible. But again, it comes all back to: Do you like it? And if you love something, if you are passionate about something. You'll do it the way you need to do it, I think, uh, because you'll put everything into it. And, um, and, uh, yeah, you, you do not need, of course, what is important though, that you need to understand in coaching, how does the human body work? You need to understand physiology. This takes time. Certainly for me, this took time because I, I didn't come out of a, 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 uh, yeah, scientific background, but, um, um, but it's not only about that. It's also about, uh, how you cope with humans in fact and that's also something you you learn with experience life experience and uh, so yeah it is certainly possible um i have seen i'm, I'm talking about france i've seen coaches here having their, their big degrees and it's so where they where you see, okay, they do not think about it they don't think further about it because they have been drawn into some some sort of theoretic pathway and they use that what what they learned in fact and at school at university but they do not think about how a person works or reacts on training and and yeah and they do have that degree and then you say okay what is better do you need a degree or not and in, in my opinion no you don't need it um but you just need to make sure that you put everything into work to to um uh, yeah, to to learn about it. I mean, uh, to to know the yeah the the uh, how the, again how the body works. To to uh, yeah, help me out. To um, I think you, you, have you to, can you can yeah, yeah you 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 have to be you have to be curious and open minded. Yeah, I think yeah yeah yeah. 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 Because there is no you can't find answers in a textbook to any of these things. No. Like it's indeed, uh, indeed. I think you have to think about thinking a lot. And like how do how and, and, Yeah, and don't be afraid to learn from other people. Yeah. Um also you know we have a good team at Scientific Triathlon, we have good coaches. We we can learn so much from each other. And that's also important um, to be open to that because a lot of people might be a bit afraid that, um, for example, someone else they they know maybe more than than you know. But okay, that's fine. That's fine. Don't don't be scared of that. Listen to them. Ask questions. So I think that's also very important. Learn, learning, uh, always, always learning. Uh, be very open minded. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um... And, and and to I mean I think that's that's a really excellent point the one about learning from other people and that's that was always one of my main goals with the with the podcast as well and that's one of the reasons like some people <laughs> ask me like what, why do you like invite other coaches or why do you promote other coaches on your on your platform and and it's like well I it's not it's not competition like there's much more much more athletes than there are coaches and and I just want to learn from good coaches and give other people a chance to learn from from good coaches we all have things to contribute with and uh yeah i think like it's a i see it as a rising tide that lifts all boats but yeah to just to i completely agree with all of what you said and i 
I have to have a few things to add that I would give us uh, advice. So, so one is that I think when you when you don't have any like background necessarily in education or as an athlete, uh, it, you just have to be like patient and consistent. I mean, no matter what background you have, you always need to keep learning because otherwise you get what David talked about, like some coaches that always do the same things and don't change their ways and don't think about things. But like a good coach, they like keep learning like until the day they they die or at least until the day they stop coaching. Uh, so so you're never going to yeah you you just have to accept that it's a process and it takes a lot of time and and uh, without a background as an athlete or in like the maybe the most suitable education although i don't think that that's maybe a good way to describe it because i think that you might have other things from your education whatever that is but yeah you have to work a bit harder but and and it takes a bit longer to catch up but but you have maybe some valuable experience that others don't so for example let's say uh i'm not, I'm not talking about paul here but somebody in general you, you come from a background of smoking and you couldn't run uh, around the block for even as, uh, for a few minutes without without stopping and then you get to the point of a few years later you do an ironman then you have something that like an elite athlete don't have like you understand that aspect of coaching in a completely different way and that that maybe is hard for an elite athlete especially if they don't make the effort to to learn about well how do i coach this kind of person how how am i empathetic to to their situation and their needs mm-hmm. which is completely different than what they have gone through personally so so i think that your own experiences might also shape your entry point into coaching in terms of who you end up working with who who you're suited to working with and it doesn't mean that you're doomed to always work with like the same kind of people not at all but but that can be a good kind of demographic to start with for your first athletes that you coach then i do think there is i do think it's good to have like uh, a coaching certification from your national governing body be, because it's just kind of a it's it's a it's a box to tick but you do end up getting some interesting insights about some sometimes some things that you didn't even think about that you need to learn about which might be things like how do you stand when you're on pool deck and give direction so that everybody can hear those sorts of things i remember that i hadn't thought about that necessarily when i when i learned those things and uh so so i think yeah you're not going to be getting a certification does not mean that you're a good coach but but i think it's something that a good coach should do like a certification like from the national governing body um and then i would also try to get into hands-on coaching like so by hands-on coaching i mean not just coaching remotely if, and but it doesn't have to be triathlon so for example what i did when i started got into coaching first now i was very young but i was coaching kids uh, much younger than myself in soccer that was how i first started coaching and i learned a lot from that that i took with me to triathlon even though it was a completely different sport but just from interacting with people and uh, that sort of thing but but then the the big thing the main thing i would say is to uh, to learn by doing you just have to get started coach some friends for a small amount of money or for free, but I think a small amount of money is better because then they have more commitment to the process. Um, but uh, but you can coach for free if that's the option that you have. And and then just be very humble and open-minded and ask them for constant feedback. And, and don't see this as a test for yourself to that you have to pass or fail, but see it as a ex- learning experience that this is kind of your education. Like they, you're, the person that you're coaching is the one that's helping you become a better coach. So you should use that to your advantage 
All right. So um, let's move on to the next part of the question, which is there is a saying that the grass is always greener, meaning that you always think what's different what's different than what you have must be nice. So as a coach uh, or an entrepreneur, what are your biggest worries or stressors or anxieties? What about you as a coach? Um, let's say my biggest worry would be my athletes uh, being not, well, uh, not being able to get their results, what we are working for. And um, that's also, that's always something that plays in your mind. I think as a coach, you want to, get the most out of people sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and you might think it's also a bit your fault so that also it has given me some stress let's say in in the past but i i also think that as a coach you need to know yeah you're part of it and yeah it is just sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so you cannot just blame yourself in 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 this uh, you might have done things wrong you might have done the things right um so um yeah that 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 could give some some stress um uh, you know people invest in you and they yeah so so you need to to try and get a do a good job if you know from yourself that you did that and you got the most out of it then uh, you shouldn't blame yourself, of course. Um, for the rest, ex- anxiety is maybe if you, for example, you decide starting a coaching business, you always have the anxiety, what if it doesn't work out? So, um, yeah, what if it just stops? Uh, so this is something, yeah, that that you can have some fear of that, uh, yeah, may- maybe this at a certain moment, this will come to an end. <laughs> and And what then? So um, it, it's a business, you know, it's your own business. So it can always go uh, uh, either way. Uh, it can go in, in a good way, in a bad way. Um, it's something you don't know. You can't foresee the future. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that those are, are both both really relevant points. I think one more thing that I would add is that, um, which could be, to be honest, for me, it's not, I don't, see this as a like stressor necessarily but for some people it would be there are just uh there's just no like real time off so for because you're always kind of you might always get a message and uh that you need to respond to it's a like you you have you have the weekend come and maybe you have set up your work life balance so that you don't necessarily work in the weekends but you have athletes racing in the weekend so of course you need to yeah, follow them and see how it goes <laughs> so so there are very few days completely off and and yeah you're always kind of on uh i think it's really important to to try to set up some system so that you you also get some so you're not always on because that would not be good for you or for your athletes in the long run so there needs to be some kind of yeah some kind of protection of your personal time but at the same time um yeah to do the best by your athletes you can't just take off for four weeks in the summer to go camping and and turn off your phone uh so for me for example i try to take one week off every year where i don't go on to training peaks and i don't have any calls with any athletes but uh but still there might be an emergency message that that i need to deal with and so on so so you don't have any like anytime fully off and and then for sure the other 51 weeks are are work weeks so so i think that that's something that 
again, for me, I don't mind that because I also have a lot of flexibility in my day. I might start work early and finish late, but in the middle of the day, I can go and run some errands and I can go and train and do things like that. I can decide on my own time. That suits me very well. Um, but I'm also very lucky that uh, I have a very supportive, understanding, significant other. And I think that that's something for some people could cause some friction. If you, on the one hand, especially if you're used to in your family life having a 95 and then that suddenly changes and you go and be a co become a coach and your complete life schedule might change because of that that, that could cause some um yeah some some issues and and it's something to to consider and, and definitely be proactive with with dealing with i think <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yeah um but yeah, I don't know, like for, again, I, I do want to say that for me, those things are not negatives. I, for, I, I like that, that way of working, but I think for some people that would not be the case. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's, that's it from the question from Paul. Yeah, uh, I, I agree on that last part because it's also for me, yeah, you're indeed always uh, busy with coaching. If we are not coaching, yeah, we're we're biking or we're running or we're swimming, yeah. and it's still training. <laughs> so we we're not thinking on anyone else's training peaks, but we're thinking at our tra training peaks. <laughs> so you're always thinking of that, and it is important indeed to sometimes to be able to say, okay, now I'll try and do my best to not think of anything, which is very difficult um, to to do. I think uh, I'm, I I see this for myself a lot. Um, yeah i'm always connected with uh, with with something of the athletes or, or myself uh, with with sports so um i don't see it as a, as a stressor really but uh, it's it's probably yeah the mind might need it on the other hand it's like you say we we have we can arrange our day we can also say at 11 a.m i'm going for a three-hour ride so if you have a nine to five day job, yeah, you'll never be able to do that. And I've, I've seen both sides and I would say this is so much better. Even if you work, work seven on seven, at least if you do 40, 45 hours a week, for example, in the coaching, yeah, you'll split it over seven days and not in, in five days. So, um, so that's, yeah, that, that's yeah. okay. But sometimes indeed it might be good to be able to say, okay, this week, no calls at least no calls yeah so yeah uh, no i do i do yeah. think that's a, a big and important topic that that would be deserving of its entire own episode yeah, like indeed. how yeah. how do you find the balance between um i guess self-care uh, might be the right word for a coach to uh, but then also being yeah providing the service to the athletes that that they need in in the long run of course for the athletes to get your best service you need to take care of yourself but at the same time maybe there is a certain type of person that is more suited to becoming a coach because they are able to be more on for a larger part of the day and the year than than others and uh, and that might be something uh, yeah there might be something in that as well all right so the last question this is the second one that i didn't really write any preparation for, uh, but I'll try to do it off the cuff. So it's from Tom, who has a four-parter. Part one is, I've personally had a difficult time with not over-adjusting after having a bad preparation race. For example, a bad half marathon three months before the A race. 
I guess the biggest problem is that I have a need for confirmation races. What should I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what should he do? Um, there's, if, if, for example, work with a coach, I think it's very important to just believe in the full process. Um, the long term, well, I mean, the process towards your A, a race, one bad race won't doesn't say anything about uh, about having a a bad a race so um don't start you you don't need to start changing everything um in in your training because you had some sort of bad race of course you need to think of what what uh what happened what went wrong and adapt a bit based on that but um it's just another experience and um but keep like 80 90 percent of your of your macro structure, let's say, keep it, believe in it. Um, yeah, make some small adaptations. But uh, it's never good, I think, to to throw everything over. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, he Tom recognizes here that he he is over adjusting. He 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 says that in the question. So so with that experience in mind, keep that in mind the next time when when you have a a preparatory race that before the race tell yourself that no matter how the race goes i'm not going to just change everything just do a good analysis what went good why did it go well or what what went bad why did it go badly and but but don't change everything make smaller tweaks but not uh, don't change everything all right part two when is a good time to look back at a race or a season to find things to improve for the next year I sometimes make notes the day of a race, uh, the the day after the race, and then a week after, and I see that I focus on really different things at each point. What would be a well-balanced time period in your eyes? Um, I, I think the notes part is really good. Um, doing it on different moments, probably just after the race, your emotion will talk, and <laughs> and you, you'll you'll write down some other stuff than than a week later. Um, when is a good time to look back at the race? Yeah, the, the, it, it's always a good time to look back at race. Um, just make sure that uh, the, the emotional part that I talked about, that um, that, that does, doesn't take the overhand, so that it doesn't just, um, decide about about uh, things to come. Um, um, but, but yeah, um, looking back at the season... I would say look back at season, give it a bit of time. Season is over, okay, wait, um, try to enjoy some other stuff. And then two two weeks later, um, one, one, two weeks later, um, yeah, have a look at well, what happened this season, what went wrong, what, what went well. Um, give it a bit of time, though, because it was a long season, lots of racing, lots of training. Um, let it sink in a bit and um, and then use that, well, Think of it, what happened, and and use it for a uh, for the for the future season. So, um, but I would say in general, yeah, there's not like a, a moment I say, okay, now I need to think uh, about that race or about that season. It you can all you can always, uh, um, yeah, think about about it. This, um, yeah. Do do? Yeah, I don't think that's a right or wrong answer. 
Uh, I think yeah. with the racing, just one one practical note that I find sometimes when people wait a couple of days, one thing, especially with longer races where nutrition is really important, you might have forgotten what you like, how much uh, you consumed, for example, of carbohydrates and how much you drank. So that's something that I would try to take note of the day of the race while you remember that. But then the rest of the analysis can can be a bit based on yeah what you feel works best definitely if you do take some notes the day of or the day after as david said it's a bit more emotional maybe especially the day of so then maybe do some more analysis uh in a couple of days or even a week when you um maybe yeah can just fully focused on focus from a more analytical perspective as well not that uh, that's better but yeah you need you want both sides and then for the season I, I do agree with having some time between the season finishing and, and analyzing it. Um, but whether it's two days or two weeks, um, I don't know. I think there's no right yeah, in there. So. Yeah. Uh, part three, when I was recovering from overtraining, my weight increased uh, about five kilograms. Now that I'm back to training, I find it hard to find a sweet spot between losing the weight again and making sure that I can recover between the sessions. Would it be smartest to first increase my ability to train, uh, so get used to the load, and then slowly decrease energy intake to lose the weight? Or should I just reduce the intake now and wait with increasing training load until I have reached my goal weight? Or just try to try to keep to the, to the middle ground? Can I can I go first with this one, David? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because <laughs> I have I have I have suffered from overtraining in the past, so I have some experience with this. Not necessarily uh well i yeah i did experience my weight increasing a bit um but uh, i think first of all the first question here is your weight increased by five kilos but is that is that a bad thing did did you get overtraining because you were under fueling and you were basically underweight uh or is is it helpful for you to reach your goal weight whatever that goal weight is i think especially in a case when you have actually suffered from overtraining I would say that you should at the very least see a registered dietitian, if not a sports medicine person, but for the weight, a registered dietitian is probably the best one, but for the health aspect, a sports medicine physician would be the uh, the person to see. So, so I think that this is a really tricky one that you have to thread really carefully with and not just assume that you should go back to the weight you were before. And uh, that is all i have to say about that no but you're right we're talking about overtraining so there might be a bit of another issue there and um yeah it, it's like we said in the beginning again uh watch out with uh not fueling enough just to to lose to lose a bit of weight um so certainly i, I would also i would do this with my athletes too i would say uh, uh i have done this with athletes um sending them over to like a dietitian uh, someone who is really expert in this um yeah yeah so uh, i i do fully agree yeah 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 i mean yeah you don't you i'm sure you don't want to get back into that that state again so so yeah just be be careful um and the last part of the question i have not been working with a designated personal triathlon coach but i'm working with a separate running coach from the club i run with a swimming coach from the triathlon club i swim with and my own schedule for the sessions i do by, my, by myself while training together is really helpful from a motivation and practical perspective i sometimes end up doing too many hard sessions during a week if the coaches get uh, enthusiastic and sometimes way too slow compared to my own longer term planning when they give an easy session while i always plan the group sessions as quality sessions uh that is only decided on the day that the session is how do i plan around this 
Um, yeah, good question. Um, do you have an immediate answer? <laughs> um, so, I guess the big potential, the, the biggest, the biggest thing to solve here, I think, is that it sounds like if all of the sessions he goes to end up being harder quality sessions, then he know he knows from experience that he's training, he's doing too many hard sessions during the week. So, so, so Tom needs to find a way to to balance that and what does that mean maybe it means that you go to the swim session but uh you know you've already done a hard run and a hard swim and a hard bike and you know that okay that is the maximum that you can sustain so this swim session you're not going to swim in your normal lane you're going to drop down a lane and you're going to do the session with them they'll be working hard but you'll be working quite easy because you're working off a slower turnaround for example so or the same could be done uh, on the run uh, as an example so i think that that's maybe the first point is to uh yeah understand how many hard sessions do you want as a maximum and then and then you have your planned quality sessions with the groups but if all of them end up being hard then by num by the fourth session or something whatever it is for you you decide that okay this is session that i'm going to take it easy somehow yeah i, th- I think sessions will have to well tom will have to decide about him, himself about certain sessions to to just mm-hmm. skip them um I've seen this this a lot in fact with athletes who are in in, in swim clubs uh just too hard and and um being really fatigued for all those other sessions of course for us it's it's sort of easy because we can see the sessions and we can adapt training to it um in his case he has three coaches who probably do not talk with each other um so certainly Tom will have to yeah make make sure and and based on his own feel take decisions that okay today i can't just do an intensity run for example because i'm I'm just feeling fatigued um it will not make you better at intensity session if you do it under fatigue so yeah do something else do do something easy um that's indeed probably a bit the the the, the issue with with people who who are coached by different coaches who do not talk about each other because it's that's so important. Uh, I, I would say um, have those coaches talk with each other, which is probably not possible, or or have uh, have them look into your training peaks. But if the sessions are only decided on the day, yeah, that won't help neither. So Tom will have to to be his own coach to make sure that he uh, yeah he doesn't overdo it. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a big problem because the second problem he mentions is that sometimes the sessions are too slow. But yeah. I don't think that that's a big problem and by the sound of it, especially he has been overtrained before. Let's not forget that. So yeah, so maybe it's true. maybe it's just a good thing that some weeks you end up having fewer uh, quality sessions and 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 ev- eventually if you get to the point where you're fully confident in your health and your long-term health and and you have a week where all of the coaches end up doing easier sessions well you can on one of the sessions that would normally maybe be an easy run for you you can you can decide to then go and do some some intervals on your own if if that is needed so i don't think that that's a, a problem really that that you can adapt to easily what you can't adapt to as easily is if you try to yeah go hard in all of the sessions that are designed as hard with the the swim club and the run club yeah yeah all right um i believe that that is the last question 
uh yes uh that is the, indeed the last question so thank you so much uh david i yeah, kept you, you for a long time but uh hopefully this will give the <laughs> listeners a lot of good uh, listening over yeah. the uh, over oh, the holiday indeed. season here super thanks a lot I hope that you enjoyed that Q&A, uh, even though it was a bit different than normal with some more, I guess, lighthearted questions, not directly related to training. Uh, hopefully uh, that was uh, interesting for you and entertaining, if nothing else. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with a bunch of links to episodes and other related uh, things that we mentioned. And uh, finally, to finish off this episode, I just want to thank you all for listening throughout this year. I really, really appreciate it so much. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. And uh, I will see you or, and you will hear me in 2024. Equally massive thank you and holiday wishes, of course, go out to our sponsors who make the show possible. So thank you, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. If you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products, I would highly recommend trying them out. You can use their free fuel and hydration planner or even get a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy. And don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS23 until the end of this year and TTS24 if you're shopping in 2024. And thank you to Sanate. Use the Sanate Swim technique power and swim training consistency even if you have just 15 minutes at home available you can get a time efficient senate workout done that will help you swim better and stronger you can try the senate risk free for up to 30 days and get 20 percent off your first order on sanitarycom for slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving crafting